All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm speaking to you on the uh, 20th of December, 2016. I'd uh, like to remind you, I'm also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And to sign up for either my letter or Chen's, you can go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our number here in New York at 718-457-1426. want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it uh, one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. Also, encourage you to continue sending along your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Orion Resources or RN Resources is the correct pronunciation, and Novo Resources. Um, title today's show is Trump Destined to Mirror the Hoover Depression. Dan Oliver, Michael Oliver, Gwen Preston, and Eric Coffin are the guests on today's show. Drawing from, uh, drawing from Roman history, Dan Oliver was one of the few financial analysts who predicted a Trump victory, but be careful what you wish for, Mr. Trump, because in many ways you are inheriting a mess similar to but exponentially greater than that inherited by President Hoover. And there are also parallels to the presidency inherited by Richard Nixon, according to Dan Oliver. So uh, the question is this. Uh, we want to ask Dan, can Hoover, uh, can Trump avoid the similar disastrous outcomes that uh, President Hoover had to a lesser degree, the difficulties that Mr. Nixon had, uh, what will that mean for the equity markets, for the bond markets, for the precious metals markets? Um, we uh, make a note that it certainly during the 1930s, the gold markets, the gold share companies did extremely well. Uh, so sometimes uh, under deflationary environments, gold mining companies can do very well. So we, we want to talk to Dan Oliver about some of those issues. And in just a few minutes after our first commercial break, Gwen Preston and Eric Coffin, two newsletter writers who cover the junior exploration sector, will join me to provide a brief outlook uh, to find out how they're viewing the markets as we head into 2017. And also we'll ask them for a couple of their favorite junior exploration stock picks as well. But now we're very grateful once again to have Michael Oliver with us uh, to give us his up-to-date views on the markets. Thanks for joining us, Michael. And just yeah, great to be here. And just to clarify for your uh, listeners, uh, Dan has no relation to me. <laughs> uh, he and I swap market letters, and uh, but uh, anyway, 
Oh, um, you're good. I'm glad you do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm anyway, glad you do. The gold market um, is on everybody's mind, and especially your listeners, and I can understand. There, there's a lot of lessons to be learned here, aside from the historical ones you just mentioned that, that might well play out. Uh, but I, as a technician, um, tend to overlook those factors. I can, I can appreciate why, fundamentally, the, the Trump election, the Brexit vote, the pending election of a conservative in France, and all these type of changes that are happening uh, have caused people to reassess fundamentals and say, well, you know, all the errors of the past are, it's okay now because we've got good people coming to the fore to cut taxes or, you know, whatever. And uh, yeah. I agree. But I issued a report today, and this, this applies to the gold market, because gold is behaving lockstep step with T-bonds recently to the downside, mm-hmm. lockstep with the euro to the downside, inverse directly to the stocks to the upside, and the dollar index to the upside. Uh, but when I measure them all, it's like measuring brothers and sisters. <laughs> they're, they're of the same body. They move inversely or coincidentally together. And I'm still of the opinion, and in particular uh, uh, regarding the T-bond market, which we became very bearish on several months mm-hmm. ago, up in the right. 160s on uh, the T-bond futures, and they're now in the 140s. But I think there is a very sharp rally to come in the T-bonds. I can see the same potential in gold and the same potential downside in the dollar. And therefore, I assume, because of the linkages so strong, especially over the last several months, that the S&P will go down if the dollar goes down. Um, dollar index, just for example, and I think it's important to gold people, because if, if these, these guys go, gold will go the other way. Dollar index is above 103 right now. It's been above it a couple times in the last two weeks. Uh, that has exceeded the price peaks of early this year and last year that were just above 100, around 100.50, talking the dollar index cash. So it's marginally gone over a two-year period, 2% higher or 3% higher than it was about two years ago, which is hardly a roaring bull trend. Uh, but it did it, and it's, you know, it's up there beating its chest a few percentage points out above this box of prior price action. If the dollar index now above 103 slips back to about 101.50, I see an intermediate downtrend beginning. And the problem is that if it gets into next year and trades under 99, so we're talking about 3 or so 4% drop from current levels, mm-hmm. it breaks an annual momentum trend, mm. which, which would be the first time it's done that, which should set in motion a lot of other factors, including a reboost in gold. Uh, as far as gold goes itself, I had a number that we issued a few weeks ago that I said, okay, uh, we originally said buy gold, but we emphasize gold miners back in February. That's when gold moved up from the 1,000s into the 1140, 1150, 1160 zone. That 1140 to 1160 zone was our buy zone. And we pounded the table, but we said, we strongly suggested that probably gold miners would beat gold this time around, and they did. Using the GDX, it did vastly better than gold. Mm-hmm. In fact, yes. so gold has now come back down to our original buy levels and slightly below that 1140 area. It's 1133 right now. Um, the GDX, when it broke out, was at 15.5 to 16, based on our annual momentum trend structures. It surged to 31. It's down right now to 19. So it has not retraced all the way back to our original buy levels. However, what we don't want to see out of gold and this will put us into neutral, not negative, is to trade the, the active nearby contract of February down to 1119.60 to put a precise number on it. 
If I see that, my hands go up. I say, uh-oh, it's a little too deep for me. I've gone neutral. I can't be bearish because there's certain other factors in play technically on gold that argue, no, this argument, go down, take out the lows, is, is highly unlikely. I know a lot of people are thinking that right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, on the other hand, let's say we don't go down to 11.19.60. We've probed into the 11.20s twice, last week and this week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right Again, right now we're in the mid-11.30s. If you uptick gold this week and these numbers drop each week mm-hmm. into the 11.54 to 11.60 zone, I think you're breaking out upside, enough to generate a strong rally. And if it, you could rally the gold market up to high 1100s, 1200 after such a breakout, which would probably be coincident with T-bonds having a rally, probably be inverse to the dollar having a sell-off, then I don't think gold's coming back to this low. I think you've seen mm-hmm. the low. So mm-hmm. right now we're about $20 short of an upside breakout and about $14, $15 above a number that I don't want to see. Mm-hmm. Sort of stuck in, stuck in the middle there. All right, Michael, you you talk about the T-bonds, uh, a counter-trend rally for T-bonds if uh, you're expecting that to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if gold rallies, is that a counter-trend rally? Or, no, or, I, the, the difference is that annual momentum gold broke out positively in February. Now, normally when you break out a very clear annual momentum structure, it's good for several years. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the T-bonds just freshly broke in October through supports on our annual momentum and 200-week momentum, which is like a four-year average almost, uh, not breaking the average, but breaking structures on the charts, uh, that indicates T-bonds have topped, yields are going up, but they're not just going up briefly, uh, they're going up longer term. So a rally in the T-bonds is counter-trend to their longer-term look. Right now, I still view the gold drop as counter to its uptrend. Mm-hmm. As serious as the drop is, it's counter to the momentum uptrend that was broken out in February. So, uh, but not right now, forgetting the long term, I'm focused more on the what you might call a trading time scale, uh, the kind of thing that if you can break out, it's worth uh, a surge of three, three or four weeks. Uh, but in the case of gold, because of certain things that happen next year, change in the three-year average, for example, this year it was at 12.44, next year it drops to about 11.80s. Uh, you ever see that number again, you're not going back down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all you need is just to get a spark of a rally. In the case of T-bonds, the rally will fail. In the case of gold, I don't think it will. So the current alignment that we see that is very disciplined, either inverse or coincident, between S&P and dollar one way, uh, T-bonds, euro, and gold the other way, those linkages I don't think will persist longer term. But for the moment, they do exist. And I, I think they're probably important. And so if you're watching gold, I'm arguing you should, you should be watching T-bonds. You should be watching the euro for sympathetic moves to the upside that indicate recovery. Euro, for example, is uh, 103, 104 area, uh, lowest level of the last 15 months, but only marginally below the lows of the last 15 mm-hmm. months. It's mm-hmm. been a very narrow 15 months, by the way, about a 10% range. If the euro trades up to 108, say a four cent rally anytime next year uh, its annual momentum goes fully positive it'll mm. take out last year's this this year's excuse me uh, momentum high that it achieved why because the three-year average is changing and therefore the momentum trend structure will change if the euro can merely pop four cents all right so, a lot of big things can happen with a little rally is what i'm saying 
All right. Well, that's very good. One more quick question. Um, I need a quick answer, actually, because we're running okay. out of time here. But uh, uh, listener Mark has written, and you know, I think you've answered his questions on uh, on gold. But uh, he's also noting that uh, uranium stocks are looking pretty good, and he's wondering if this might not be part of the overall bullish commodity complex uh, that that you've uh, that you've been talking about. Do you see it that uh, way still, Michael? Yes, I put out a uranium report a few weeks ago, in fact. I, I don't do it often, but probably twice a year. Uh, there is a thinly traded uranium futures contract. Uh, it looks like it is turning up on a uh, what I would call a quarterly momentum basis. Its annual momentum is still negative, but it has the type of base that suggests if you can get the rally going, it won't take a lot to turn its annual momentum up. So, yes, I agree. I think that the commodity complex upturn is a mixed not unified process. In other words, we saw oil, natural gas, sugar, gold, and silver have big up moves this year. And there's some down moves too, but, but net on balance up. But the grains and the meats laid low. I think it's their turn next year to come to the forefront of the commodity complex, in which case you'll have a, all the commodities will be in some positive or moderately positive trend. And I, at that point, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, for example, will be begin to get noticed. And I think that's when people will interpret the bond sell-off or the rise in yields, which they assign to the economy's getting better argument. They'll realize that the bond sell-off is due to a commodity rise, Mm. uh, coming inflation. They'll change their, their story, in other words. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it go at that because we're out of time. Thank you very much, uh, Michael, for being with us. Again, folks, it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com to track uh, what Michael is doing. Thanks so much for being with us, Michael. We'll look to do it again next week. Well, folks, uh, don't go away. We're going to a commercial break. But when we come back, Gwen Preston and Eric Coffin will be with us. Uh, We're going to hear a couple of their favorites and um, a couple of their favorite stock picks as well as uh, perhaps – they can give us their idea of where things are headed in the markets in 2017. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Gwen Preston and Eric Coffin. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Foreign Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Foreign is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. 
Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Gwen Preston and Eric Coffin, two newsletter writers, independent newsletter writers. I should add that uh, write uh, for their paid subscribers, the people who um, who, who pay for their efforts and their, and their good work. And I've uh, known both of these people now, Eric, longer than Gwen, but... Uh, have a very high regard for both uh, both newsletter writers. They know they're very knowledgeable about the resource sector, uh, and in particular the junior sector. So I'm very pleased to have both of you with me again. Thanks, Gwen, and thanks, Eric, for joining me. Um, Thanks, Jay. Should start out uh, maybe just let our listeners know it's resourcemaven.ca, resourcemaven.ca for Gwen. Preston, and uh, you can follow what Eric does and then sign up for his newsletter at hraadvisory.com, hraadvisory.com. I hope I've got that right. Do I? Yep. Yes, you do. Yep. (laughs) All right. uh, Good. Um, Yeah, we like our people to be able to follow up after they've uh, heard you talk. Uh, Gwen, let's start out with you. What are your thoughts as we head into this this new year, 2017? We've had a, a pretty... Well, it's been a sort of a round trip of a year for gold shares and for the markets in, in many ways. Uh, are you hopeful at all for 2017? Because a lot of people have gotten very, very discouraged and bearish, uh, at least gold investors and gold share investors. Absolutely, yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, it's been a really interesting year, uh, and it's finishing off with a really interesting month. Certainly, the gold price has clearly broken down, um, you know, through technical barriers and in terms of sentiment uh, problems, obviously stem back to the strength of the dollar, the strength of the U.S. markets, um, bullishness in America in general. Um, in a big picture perspective, I'm still bullish on gold. I still think that we are in, in a, a gold uptrend environment, and that's because we're still there's no reason at this point to think that real interest rates are going to be anything other than negative for the next, mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future. Um, so in that sense, I'm still bullish on gold. The near term, however, is certainly challenged. I mean, like I say, the, the headwinds for gold are the dollar in the U.S. markets, and we don't see changes. I don't see near-term reasons for those to break down specifically um, right away. I think one of the interesting ways that's playing out is that right now, I mean, it's the 20th of December today, usually companies stop trying, you know, junior explorers stop trying to raise money once the middle of December hits. It's just a weak time of year and people go on vacation and you can't get subscription forms in. Um, but there's, a, there's dozens of financings happening right now. So that's a, it's an interesting time in the market. Clearly, companies are concerned that the price of gold is going to remain weak, despite the fact that the first few months of the year are usually the best for gold. So there's a possibility that gold will strengthen once January hits, but there's certainly concern around that gold will stay weak, and lots of companies are doing what they can to raise some money right now so that they can be active in the new year, regardless of what happens with the price of gold. Mm, yeah, that's that's very uh, that's very interesting to note that they are still raising money in this environment. Uh, Eric, what are what are your thoughts about the markets as we head into the new year? I mean, I'm I'm generally, I guess, sort of positive. I'm I'm pretty comfortable that this is a new bull market. So, and yeah, it's a big it's a big drawdown towards the end of the year, and people are are you know upset and depressed and whatever. Uh, but the simple <laughs> truth is. If you look at what happened this year, and and if you were harping on people as I was, and I know quite well that Gwen was, that uh, you get into expiration situations and the market's nice enough to give you 
two or three hundred percent gain, so you can zero out and mm-hmm. the result. And, and I know both Gwen and I were telling people over and over until they were sick of hearing it to do that. Uh, so hopefully people are still in reasonably good shape. And I am seeing, I'm seeing continued buying on stories that are active right now. And by that, I mean they're in the field right now and where people like the look of the targets or they've already generated some decent results. They're not moonshots by any means, but they're actually holding up reasonably well. And that gives me some, some comfort and some hope that, uh, if, if companies can deliver on their expiration promise, I, I think they're still going to be able to find money. It's, it's definitely harder than it was a few months ago. As far as gold goes, I don't, you know, personally, I know, I know 1080 is kind of the official chart number, but I'm, I'm a little skeptical. It's going to go that low. I think when we get to year end, you're going to see some rollover in New York. There's a huge amount of window dressing going on right now. And once those fund managers get past, December, and they sent out their quarterly statements and shown how clever they were. I expect <laughs> some of them to be taking money off the table because, I mean, these guys aren't idiots. They know how overvalued the market is, but they have to be seen to be in the market when the, when the year closes out. Plus, you know, with Trump, who knows? I mean, yeah, he's, he's had this enormous honeymoon, but it, it's very similar to me to the Reagan rally, the, the first time Reagan was elected, and the year after he was elected, which is the first official year of his term, wasn't a great one for the major markets. We might see a repeat of that, I think. Yeah, it certainly does seem to be a honeymoon, and nobody is, uh, you know, Gwen, you were saying that you think we're we're still looking at uh, negative real rates of interest, which is really the key for gold, I believe. So uh, we'll see, but it seems as though everybody is sort of buying into the idea that we've got a new president and everything's going to be just honky-dory and we're going to have this great growth and everything else, despite all the debt and everything else. Well, I don't want to dwell too much on, on economic stuff because we do that most of the rest of the show, but what I would like to do is get a couple of the top picks that both of you have. Gwen, starting uh, with you, I think you indicated Nevson, which is a name that I've known for quite a few years, but haven't followed it as it's grown up into a pretty good-sized company. I see it's got a, a, a market cap of uh, $1.3 billion or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nevson, definitely a story that's been around for a while. Uh, for many years, was defined by its Bisha mine in Eritrea, so East um, Africa, Um and Bisha is a fantastic mine. It started out as a gold mine, but then became predominantly a, a more a copper mine. And in the last year, they have completed, commissioned, and are now producing um, from a zinc circuit. Um, and that is one of the reasons that I really like the story right now. If you are concerned about the price of gold, well, why don't you look at copper and zinc? Because those are commodities that are actually doing very well. I mean, the price of zinc has almost doubled in the last 12 mm. months, which is yeah. very impressive, and is moving it moving. Uh, moved, sorry, the price of zinc up out of the sideways band that it's been in for almost seven years. So it has actually broken up from that. Fundamentals for zinc are very strong. And um, the, uh, the Nevson's zinc concentrate was the, fir- was the only zinc concentrate to enter the market this year, um, you know, the freely available zinc market. So that's, that's one suggestion of how tight the zinc market is. I know uh, smelter charges for zinc concentrates have come down dramatically in the last few months. That's the amount that a smelter charges to um, process your zinc concentrate, and high charges mm-hmm. um, suggest that there's lots of concentrate available, and smaller charges mean that it's getting competitive to get that con, and that's uh-huh. the situation we're in right now. We're just sort of running out of zinc con. So I think Nevson provides some great um, exposure to zinc, which is a bit of a difficult thing to get into a portfolio, exposure to mm-hmm. zinc. There's not a lot of pure zinc stories out there. 
And then they also had a fantastic year in that they closed the acquisition of Reservoir Minerals, which gave them the Timok project in Serbia. Um, The story there is just an example of how a really good discovery holds value regardless of what's going on with the market. I mean, Timok came to be during the bear market. It's a fantastic um, discovery. We're talking about uh, the upper zone there where the grades of copper are sort of 8 to 15%. The grades Oof. of gold are 5 to 12 grams per ton, right? Oof. We're looking at a really high-grade deposit that now Nevsan um, is moving towards, uh, you know, planning how they, might ter- how they will turn that into a mine. So now they've got an organic growth profile. They've got new zinc concentrate. I think they're very well positioned for, uh, for this coming year. Yeah, and pay a little dividend too, I believe. They do, and they're very yeah. uh, they're very focused on that dividend. I know some of their major shareholders w- would not let them cancel that. So yeah, it's actually a medium scale miner that pays a dividend, which is unusual in itself. Oh, okay. Uh, and one other one that you mentioned, Red Eagle. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. So Red Eagle, um, Red Eagle just finished and is currently commissioning. Uh, the first underground gold mine in Colombia. Colombia is a country that has attracted interest from the mining world uh, for quite a few years now um, as the peace process has advanced. It's still a difficult country to operate in. I know I just spent two weeks there, so I learned a lot about the, the opportunities and the challenges in Colombia. But if you can pick the right parts of the country, and if you can do it with a team that knows how to operate and is uh, uses you know their ears and responds appropriately to to the needs. Um, it's an area that has some really some really good opportunities, and so they're now tapping into a resource that averages five grams per ton. Um, they've got a very a nice shiny new plant that's operating very well. Um, there's some really good exploration upside. Um, classic situation where they haven't done a lot of exploration at this project for years because they've been focused on getting it into production. So really interesting exploration upside. Um, And this is a stock that sort of because it got into production just as the gold market started into this correction, hasn't gotten the re-rating that a stock would usually get as it moves into that producer category. Um, So from an exploration upside and from a re-rating perspective, I think Red Eagle is is another good, good one to pay attention to. All right, so uh, folks, it's uh, resourcemaven.ca, resourcemaven.ca, if you'd like to know more about those two names. I'm sure, Gwen, you've uh, written about them or will be writing about them uh, in the near future, right? I absolutely have written about both, for sure. Uh, Okay, so uh, there you go, folks. A couple of very interesting possibilities. Eric, and you have a couple as well that you'd like to talk about. Uh, Possibly San Marco was one that you've uh, mentioned to me. Yeah, I mean, I've picked... These two companies, for a couple of reasons, one is they're sort of at sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. That Bear Creek isn't in production yet. Mm-hmm. I've also picked them because they both happen to be presenters at the next Metal Investor Forum, which which the esteemed Jay Taylor will be speaking at. He <laughs> <laughs> does have a link on his website, people, just so you know, um, if you want to well, you want to join us there. Uh, let me just cl- let me just clarify something for our listeners, Eric. You are not an IR guy. No, <laughs> no, you're you're an analyst, and yeah, so an analyst. When, uh, so it's very kind of you, but it's uh, I, I'm not so sure about the, the esteemed part. But anyway, you're esteemed oh, in my are, eyes. All right, so <laughs> all right, so I'm sorry for the interruption, but I just had to clarify no. that you are not you are not a BS uh, IR guy. You are <laughs> an analyst through and through, no. and Gwen and Gwen as well. 
uh, are real people. Real people, not uh, not real not, people. Not, yeah, not con artists. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, okay, Eric. San Marcos, uh, San Marcos is an interesting story. They've got a couple of things going. I mean, I I picked them because I, I know they're going to have a lot of news flow. They're working on on two main things. One is the more advanced project, which they're just getting ready for drilling. It's all being permitted in Mexico. Uh, that project, they've just delivered another set of results from. I, I was talking to their president a few days ago, and he's expecting uh, he's expecting actually get a whole whack of more trenching and soil sampling and geophysical results on this project in the next two or three weeks. But he's already got very strong drill targets, but it, it's obvious from talking to him that their targets are getting quite a bit larger as they, uh, they continue this work. The other thing that's interesting that San Marco is doing is they've got a joint venture with a private company called Globetrotters. Globetrotters specializes in targeting based on remote sensing, and by that I mean like Landsat, Aster, mm-hmm. those sort of high-resolution things. This only really works if you're looking at outcrop. It doesn't, there's no depth penetration with this, so you've got to work in areas where there's lots of outcrop, and one of those areas happens to be Sonora State, Mexico. And the, the joint venture they have is they acquired all the data, they did all this targeting, they handed the San Marco guys this giant, and it is a giant list of targets, about 200 of them. They're doing the boots on the ground work. If, if it's something that's open and looks really good, they stake it. If it's something that looks really good, they may talk to a, a present owner about, about acquiring it. They've already picked up eight or ten concessions. The way this will work is that it'll be fast and dirty. They're going to end up dropping most of these, but things that look like they could work, um, they'll be advancing rapidly. So I expect them to generate a whole lot of targets over the next few months. So talking to Bob, I know that they're pretty excited about a couple of these things already, and I can tell you, though Globetrotters is private, I know the CEO, he started this company to do the same thing in Peru, and he's got option agreements with several majors, I know Lundin Mining, for instance, has a porphyry discovery that they don't talk about that I know they made strictly based on his targeting. Mm. It was really, apparently, this thing's like right next to the Pan American Highway. For whatever reason, nobody oh, else ever boy. looked at it. Wow. <laughs> that's, but he, that's he picked up alterations on That's what this does. And then just alterations, that's all great. But somebody's actually got to go look at it and bang rocks, and that's where the San Marco guys come in. All right. Well, that's, that's remarkable. I should... Should mention also that it's only an eight million dollar market cap, something like that, right, Eric? San Marco. And he's got he's got a lot of big supporter shareholders. Most of the big guys at Haywood are, are big shareholders of his company. Tuki Angus, who's a director and a friend of mine, he's the biggest shareholder. Um, it, it's one of those deals where if he gloms onto something, he's going to get market support because there's a lot of people behind him. He's got a lot of people on his side. Now, Bear Creek is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. There. They're doing detailed engineering and permitting now on their Karani project in Peru. Karani's got about 300 million ounces of silver. It also has very high lead-zinc credits. And one of the things that makes it interesting to me is it's gotten whacked because it's a silver stock. Um, I'm not and have never been a silver bug. But the one thing that I like about this deal is it has extremely high leverage, the silver, uh, Karani's NPV goes up about $120 million for every $1 increase in the silver Ooh. price. <laughs> and because of what lead and zinc prices have done, the market's actually probably marked it down more than they should have because they're going, well, silver has gone down, so let's whack um, Bear Creek from 350 back to 2 bucks. But the truth is, 
if you look at the actual production in the first five years uh, and you look at the price increases for lead and zinc, they've essentially offset the losses due to the price drop in silver. So their $600 million is still basically valid. So I, I'm viewing that as a nice... It's a nice stock people have sort of forgotten about. That's why I asked them to present at the next MIF. But it's also one, if you are a silver bug and you want leverage, they have really, really high leverage to silver prices. All right. Very good. Well, we're going to have to leave it go at that. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But I should mention, and I didn't, that uh, the Metals Investor Forum that uh, Eric just uh, referred to will be held on the 20th and 21st of January, again in Vancouver. Go to jtaylormedia.com to sign up for it. Just click on the Metals Investor Forum uh, link there. Uh, And it's very easy. Just name and email and you're off. But you do need to sign up because their space is limited and uh, we want to make sure you have a space there. So I hope all of you will consider going. Uh, Those of you who are at least in uh, in the metropolitan area up there in the northwestern part of this uh, continent, and uh, again, uh, Gwen, are, you, are you, the two companies you name going to be there by any chance? Uh, they are, yep. They're both going to be there presenting for sure. Excellent. Very good. Well, we really look forward to seeing both of you and uh, uh, hearing those stories and, and many, many more. That uh, It's always an excellent forum. It's an excellent conference, one of my, actually the best one that I've been to that I've participated in it all. So I hope uh, my listeners will make every effort to be there. Thanks so much for being with us again, both both of you, Gwen and Eric, and we'll look to see you in a couple of weeks. Look forward Thank to it. Thanks, Jay. All righty, folks. Well, we do have to go to commercial break, but don't go away because coming up, Dan Oliver will be with us, and he's making comparisons of uh, the Donald Trump uh, entrance into the White House uh, along the lines of Herbert Hoover. He believes there's some real parallels there in terms of the credit cycle. Well, we'll have to see. Uh, hear what Dan has to say about that and, you know, what, uh, what does that mean for the markets that we're following? So don't go away. We'll be right back with Dan Oliver. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently processing a 30,000-ton bulk sample. Novo also controls 100% interest in the Blue Spec Gold Antimony Project, where it is conducting a 10,000-meter drill program. The company has over $7 million in cash and enjoys strong shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the Symbols NVO and NSRPF, respectively. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me Dan Oliver. Uh, Dan's been with us a number of times before. He is the uh, the founder 
and Managing Director of Mermican Capital. Welcome, Dan, and thanks for joining me again today. Thanks for having me. I would like to focus on a missive that you wrote for investors, uh, I think back um, a couple of weeks back, maybe November 25th or so. Um, you had some very interesting things to say there that I'm sure my listeners would would find very intriguing and, and important. You noted that on uh, back in July, uh, the betting markets gave Trump a 5% chance of winning the nomination, much less the presidency. And uh, But then you said that uh, that you and your company were really arguing that Trump's victory was historically inevitable. And so I'm wondering, um, you, were, you were saying that based on your study of history, and so I'm wondering uh, what the pollsters could have learned if they studied a bit of history that might have allowed them to get their, their predictions to be a little more accurate. Well, that's a great question, Jim. It would be a surprise if any modern commentator, uh, commentator look at what's happened in the past and try to learn from it, which is what people did for 2,000 years until all of a sudden we have this modernist view that everything is new, which, of course, nothing is new. But there, there were really two reasons why I thought Trump was going to win. And when I said historically Neville, well, what I mean is a character like Trump, that that was a natural evolution of our political system. And, and the two reasons are, are, are first that the U.S. Constitution was self-consciously based on Republican Rome. Uh, and, and the founding fathers studied uh, ancient government forms, especially the Roman Republic, and, and they tried to create a, a government that wouldn't fall into the empire that the Roman Republic uh, uh, fell into. But of course, uh, you, I think that transition, in, in, in a way, is the natural order of things. And so, you know, I, I've called Trump our first emperor. What I mean by that is that the, the emperors that came out of the, after the republic. Uh, did so because the the infighting among the political parties in the republic was so destructive to 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 the wealth of the country, to foreign policy, to civic virtue that the, the Romans basically decided that having one strong man at least to, to give stability was preferable to the uh, uh, infighting that had been going on before. And and the the emperors drew their power from the plebeians, from the, from the lower uh, ranks of society, which is why the sophisticated folks hated them and all the uh, histories that have survived. Uh, uh, you know, say that they're obscene and they were vulgar and they were, you know, all sorts of other things, which, which of course, uh, is more or less what the press says about Trump because it's the same sort of phenomenon where Trump is getting his support from the non-elites, from the, the doubt and problem. And the elites of both political parties, as we saw, uh, were pro-Hillary. Even, even Republicans who have been in government for a very long time preferred the status quo of a Hillary to the populism of Trump. So that was the, the, the first point. And the second point was, that Trump's program, which is basically protectionism and uh, internal improvements, is nothing new. And in fact, this is the origins, the very origins of the Republican Party. Um, if we go all the way back to the panic of 1819, uh, Henry Clay and his Whig Party, uh, he developed something called the American system. And the idea was that we were going to have high tariffs to get British goods out. Well, we would use the revenue to, uh, to fund internal improvements, you know, canals and that kind of thing. And we would have a strong central bank that would coordinate the whole thing. That was the central, mm. the, the second bank of the United States. Uh, and so, so he set that up. It almost caused South Carolina to, to secede. Uh, this is in the 18, 1820s and 30s. And as uh, that panic faded, as, as people started growing again, they forgot about th this very pernicious system uh, until 1857 when another big panic came. And Abraham Lincoln, who was the first Republican president, ran on a platform of high tariffs. 
and internal improvements. Uh, and, he, and he funded the whole thing with greenbacks, right? They printed all the money to fight the war, and that enabled him to, to, to do his, his, his program. And of course, the South didn't like it much because they were, the, the South exported all the cotton, so they were paying all the, all the tariffs, uh, and, um, and, and all the money was being invested in the North. So that was one of the causes of the Civil War. This thing popped up again, this principle, another Republican president, Hubert Hoover, in the 20s, uh, the, the, the stock market pop, bubble pops right after it becomes president. And what does he do? Tax revenue shrinks by half, he doubles spending, and the Federal Reserve goes crazy uh, and starts uh, uh, buying all sorts of bonds. And, and he, he tries stimulus, doesn't work, uh, of course, but that's what he tries. And then you have Richard Nixon, another Republican. Uh, in, in the 70s, again, the credit bubble that was blown up by Kennedy and Johnson in the 60s uh, uh, cracked. And w- what does he do? He, he unleashes the Federal Reserve. Arthur Burns is our printing money to have stimulus. He, he boosts his spending by 72% uh, over his six-year tenure. And so, so, so this is actually not anything extraordinary. This is, in fact, what ha- always happens after a credit bubble. And it's always been a Republican that seems to implement this stuff. So, so those two reasons. It was where where the United States is in terms of the cycle of history, and also uh, what what the natural reaction is to the bursting of a credit bubble uh, of these three things: uh, internal improvements, tariffs, and the central bank printing money. And that's the rub because you know Trump was was campaigning against Janet Yellen's loan, which is rates, and she sort of stuck it to him by raising interest rates uh, <laughs> last week, right? And, and this system doesn't work. I mean, part, part of the point is that you print the money to, to make these improvements and everything's wonderful. It doesn't work, of course, but that, that, that's the theory. And so here we have you know, one of these three prongs not really working. And, and what's interesting is you know, Yellen's term, I, I think, expires uh, in 2018. And it, it'll be interesting to see who Trump replaces her with because uh, here he was uh, as a hawk in the in the campaign, but he needs mm-hmm. a dove, a serious dove yeah. to buy the infrastructure bonds that he's planning to sell uh, to, to build the bridges and the wall and all the rest of it. So, it, you know, it, it's, it's unclear exactly how he's going to manage uh, uh, this. He, he's a clever fellow. I mean, I, you know, I, I think one shouldn't underestimate him when that was the error the Democrats made, but he, he is stuck in this uh, in, in the situation where there is a massive credit bubble. It is going to pop. He doesn't want it to pop on his watch, obviously. And so his only, the only way to prevent it from popping is to do more of what Obama did, more stimulus, more money printing, more all those things, which of course is the very opposite thing that he ran on. So it'll be interesting to see how it, how it plays out. Sure. It sure will be. Well, I have to ask you though, Dan, it seems as though, you know, taking the bigger picture here, that Trump may be stuck with something much more serious in terms of the credit cycle than either Hoover or Nixon in that the debt, the debt has grown so much more, so much greater, I believe, relative to GDP than at any time in the past. And also, you are, I think, making a bigger, you're looking at a bigger change here, a more, you know, historically a larger change. If what you're saying is Trump is our first emperor, then it seems to me that we have completely gotten rid of the idea of a republic then and have transitioned into a, an empire now. Is that what you're saying? Well, well, let's talk. I mean, as an emperor-like figure, I mean, I don't think oh, okay. he's, he's going to, you know, be present for the rest of his life, kind of thing. But, but yes, in, in a way, I mean, Obama ruled by executive order. I mean, executive that that is what emperors and dictators do, and mm-hmm. and it was very effective. I mean, a lot of it was illegal, and people would sue, and it would take him three years in the court to to argue it out. And by the time the court decided against Obama, everything had changed, and so it almost didn't matter. That, that, that he lost in the course. And this is very effective. And I, I did see, I think this week, he, 
he, he gave some advice to Trump not to use so many executive orders. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable. I, I saw that, I too. Mean, but yeah. Trump's, I mean, like Obama's not the first guy to do this. I mean, Bush did it too, and, and, yeah. and Clinton did it too. But but every president discovers they can push the boundaries further and further. And so and so Obama really, really pushed the envelope on this. And uh, and so Trump is going to be able to, first of all, unilaterally undid do a lot of what Obama did. Although, again, I mean, <laughs> you can't bring back all the infrastructure in the coal industry, for example, that he that he destroyed. And I mean, there's certain things you, it's hard to undo. And then, of course, he can do it himself. Uh, the president has been set, and, and it's hard for the Congress to complain uh, if Trump does it, given the fact they did absolutely nothing when Obama was doing it. So, so we have created a system whereby the, the, the uh, president has enormous powers, you know, not unimagined by the founding fathers. And what's interesting is, you know, when Roosevelt came in the 30s, he, he passed the National Recovery Act, which was essentially American fascism. Uh, uh, industry had to organize into various groups, and then they could only, they could set prices privately, but they had the force of law, and the president got to review the whole thing. It was just based on Mussolini system. And mm-hmm. the Supreme Court overturned it because they said that the the Congress, it was unconstitutional for the Congress to give the president so much power. Uh, I think Congress, you know, redid much of the program on their own. But but the point is that 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 was sort of that was the last gasp of you know there are separation of powers and Congress has things. I mean, ever since then, the presidency, as an institution, has grabbed more and more of of the power. As has the Supreme Court and Congress has really been left in the middle. Too bad the uh, courts didn't rule the same way with respect to the Federal Reserve when it was put into place. I think. <laughs> well, well, that's right. I think that's a more complicated story. I mean, the Federal yeah. Reserve. Which you found it was not meant to buy government bonds; it was meant to discount commercial bills. But that's a that's a very different. Yeah, that's another story. But still, the Congress uh, basically handed over the power to this private corporation, uh, the Federal Reserve. Um, well, uh, so I guess maybe what you're saying then is, I mean, this is a populist move, but it isn't just happening here, Dan. It's happening around the world. We're seeing, you know, Brexit. We're seeing France. We're seeing we're almost every place where the ruling elite has 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 really held the upper hand. Uh, but will it be that much different under Trump? Or you're but, but suggesting Jay, well, it's, it's not just every place; it's every time. In fact, when when you look at previous times, when when there was too much debt and the effect of the populace was sunk under their debts, uh, they 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 turned to a populist. I mean, again, the the the, the parallels are very deep here. Uh, Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. uh, one of his pla- planks in his platform was to gain weird interest uh, payments for for the little people. Uh, that's mm-hmm. one reason why he was so popular. Uh, um, so I mean, uh, FDR was a populist. And, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, who again came in the context of, of this credit bubble popping, uh, used these fireside chats to bypass the meeting or straighten people's living rooms. And of course, that's what Trump's doing with Twitter. Sure, uh, so it's it's you know th- th- these things do repeat themselves all all through history. It's not just now, but but yes. I mean, to answer your, to your question, uh, I, I think as long as. The current banking system persists the way it is, and the level of debts keep going higher. You're going to have more and more popular rejection of what is inherently an unjust system. Um, what 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 I'm interested by, of course, is that Trump ran as a populist, and, and the number of billionaire oligarchs that he's put into his cabinet is yeah. extraordinary. Uh, and so it makes it makes you wonder what his real program is. I I don't really know. I mean, I you know I, he he's supposed to be the champion of. The, the Rust Belt, and, uh, and 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 this is what drives the whole tariff conversation. But of course, that 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 is not a, a you know what what causes the Rust Belt to disappear was not free trade; it was uh, the credit bubble. Whenever the banks create too much credit, uh, the, the domestic price level goes up. That encourages imports; it discourages exports. You get a big trade deficit, and 
and uh, and that and the domestic industry disappears. And you know, this this something's written up by the Bullion Committee of 1810 in England uh, that they discussed this, and and they and they called it. Uh, they said the consequences of printing money are too obvious to require pr- uh, proof and too repugnant to justice to be left without remedy. I love the language from, from the 19th century, but the point is, this, this was something that they said was well known in 1810, and yet, of course, modern economists have completely forgotten it. So, so tariffs aren't the answer. The answer is to to fix that bank system that, that created this, this mess in the first place. But is Trump going to do that when he's appointing Goldman Sachs folks here left and right? I, I, it seems unlikely. It seems unlikely. There was uh, supposedly an economist, a, a lady, if I've forgotten her name now, uh, who was a proponent of the gold standard, and Trump made some uh, made, made some sort of reference to it in the past, but uh, but it hardly seems possible. And if anything, what you're saying is more of the same. Uh, more and more credit is going to be needed to do the things that Trump's talking about doing, and yet, uh, you know, Dan, very few people. Uh, seem to be at all understanding of the monetary system and how important that is. It's sort of something that's just there. Nobody questions it. Um, they used to question it. And yeah. uh, the CMRE, an institution that you've been a part of, uh, the Committee for Monetary Research and Education, of course, has its you know, its basis in, in, in that topic. Uh, but unless that changes, I think nothing nothing gets fixed, right? Nothing goes back well, to, 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 to... To your yeah. point, the CMRU was founded in 1970 by Henry Hazlitt and you know, Jacques Rueff was involved and all, all, yes. these, you know, all these wonderful people. And, and it was in the context of, you know, they organized a group to basically rebel against Bretton Woods. And mm-hmm. uh, in the 1970s, all the inflationary problems, the banking problems, you know, vindicated their, their viewpoint. And it was a very robust, important organization. Then what happened was, uh, you know, in the 80s, uh, you've had a huge credit bubble begin, and everyone making money. There's no goods inflation. Only inflation is an asset price. What everybody loves. You know, everyone, you know, everyone loves inflation. When asset prices inflate, they just don't like when goods prices do. And, and right. so that conversation kind of died, and the, and the organization got pretty more abound. And then the panic of, of 2008 happened, and all of a sudden there was renewed interest in the, in the monetary system. Now, that interest has certainly withered a bit because, again, like the 1980s, uh, the market's been screaming higher. I mean, there's been a, a little bit of inflation in goods, but not not a crazy amount. I mean, some things, healthcare and things like that, certainly, but it, it hasn't really been biting the way it was in the 70s yet. And so the interest it, it has sort of faded a bit. But I think we'll all, you know, we're always just one panic away from everybody taking an interest again. Uh, and part of the reason, Jay, is that I think, you know, I, I know, especially living in New York, all, all my friends and colleagues who work in the Financial industry, whatever form, or other banks, or private equity firms, or law firms, or whatever it is, they're all compensated on a transaction basis. They're all based. They're all doing transactions. Nobody's paid big money to think about the whole system, no. so they don't. I mean, why, why would they? And in fact, no. it's almost a detriment because you figure out how crazy the whole thing is. You might think, "My God, what am I doing my, with my <laughs> with my time?" And that would yeah. be very productive. The idea is you, you want to extract as much money from the system as you can before it blows up. And uh, and so not thinking about it can actually help it in, in a way. Yeah, and some of us who have been betting on it blowing up have been wrong, wrong, wrong. And the people that have just simply bought the mainstream ideas have made lots of money by, That's by right. going along the equity market. But, okay, so we've had this bull market now for a number of years. Yeah. Uh, and we're seeing the debt. You know, we're seeing interest rates rise. I don't think, Dan, just because uh, of Yellen, it seems to me there may be other factors. In fact, my view is that perhaps it's more market-driven and Yellen is just simply following the demands of the market. We see a lot of uh, foreign investors, for example, supposedly are stepping away from treasuries and not 
not buying them to the extent that they were in the past. Uh, they have their own needs to use their resources, their financial resources, Europe, for example, and China and elsewhere. Uh, do, you, do you think, I mean, the policies of, of tariffs and um, infrastructure, stimulus and all that uh, would seem to be inflationary. And then if you dump, you know, massive amounts of money being printed, do you think that there may be a shift now from the financial assets, which, as you note, people don't seem to bo- bother? That's a form of inflation. The Austrians understand that's inflation. Yeah. Uh, that, that that could come back into the to the real stuff, to the commodities, and we actually start to see some increase in inflation as the government measures it. Well, it depends who you're talking about. I mean, my view is that uh, one of the things the credit bubble does is it, it lengthens the uh, structure production to an artificial uh, uh, point. So, in other words, you know, China has built all these steel mills to build ghost cities everywhere. And, and, and you know, one question is how many more ghost cities they can build before the whole system blows up. And there's lots of debt backed by those ghost cities that people think are valuable in, in, in China currently. And that will change, you know, usually overnight there's some panic. Uh, and, and then what will happen is all that overcapacity get dumped onto the market. And so that will lower the prices of things like that. And uh, and that's why I think what would drive the big tariff wave is not just rhetoric on Trump's part. When, when the Chinese overcapacity hits the market, it will lower prices and, and be a direct threat to you know whatever's left the Rust Belt. And, and the way you have to respond is either let your people go out of business or put tariffs up. And, and that's what happened in the previous iterations. And, and that's why it, you know tariffs found general support. Um, so so I, I don't know that you get uh, you know lots of goods inflation if the Fed keeps tightening because what will happen is people won't be able to refinance. Uh, their projects, and, and all of a sudden the inventories and we thrown in the market, and, and all the inputs will be uh, fallow, and so you get a lot of price uh, declines. Now, if the Fed steps up and starts supporting the market as it did in the 70s, then you yes, then you can get lots of price inflation, even as credit disappears, and that's one way to get rid of credit. Of course, is you inflate your way out of it, but to do that requires a compliant Fed that's going to print the money uh, to to make that happen, as, as what happened in the 70s, and so that, that that's why I think. Looking at the Fed is very important to gauge, you know, are we going to get out of this in a deflationary way where we're defaults in our debts or an inflationary way where they're printed away? Uh, uh, but in terms of gold, looking at gold, in terms of gold's real price, I mean, the, the price of commodities against gold, that doesn't care whether it's inflation or deflationary. What, what that mm-hmm. cares is which direction are credit levels headed. And when credit levels are going higher… Uh, then, then gold sinks in terms of commodities, and that is what's been happening since the election. Because everyone thinks we're going to have all this stimulus, and and uh, and he's going to unleash the banks, get rid of Dodd Frank, and so on and so forth. And that is a, I think, natural reaction. Uh, right. My my own view is it'll be too little. I mean, I I saw Caterpillar's numbers came out, and they've had their 48th consecutive month of declining global sales, and yet the stock price is going crazy. Because All right, the, Dan, we're, we're, yeah. we're going to have to leave it go at that because we're out of time. Essentially, what okay. I think you're saying is that we have uh, uh, some very, very strong headwinds against inflation. Uh, more than likely, we're going to see the real price of gold increase. Do I have you right? And if that's the case, then we might see a, a good scenario for gold mining companies. Oh, I, I, I think so. You know, assuming that the stimulus isn't enough to bring the whole world out of its funk, which I assume it isn't. But that, that's yeah. the question. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's the is also some parallels there, Trump and Hoover, perhaps. I I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Very good. I mean, well, Hoover, I- Hoover 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 came to the office in March, and the market cracked in October. So I mean, there there was a little bit of honeymoon for him, but that that was yeah. the time frame, and the same thing can happen. All right, all right, Daniel. Well, unfortunately, we've got to leave it go there. Thank you so much for coming on with us today, and always a pleasure. We'll look to do it again sometime in the near future, hopefully. 
Thanks, Jay. Well, well folks, that is, uh, that's it for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking to uh, Jeff Deist and uh, Daniel McAdams, uh, Ron Paul's um, Jeff Deist, Rand Paul's uh, chief of staff, um, and also uh, Michael Oliver will be with us again. So until then, goodbye, uh, God's blessings, and Merry Christmas to you all. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.